It's 11.06 on the nose on this Monday morning, and it's my absolute pleasure to have an award-winning author, a former Edmonton Journal columnist, co-founder of Story Engine, Todd Babiak in the 6.30 Ched studio. It's great to see you again. It's lovely to be here, right? Uh, we received some feedback on the text line just before you joined us. We brought our listeners some of the, the more meaningful, more impactful moments from Don Getty's state funeral on Saturday on the text line to 6.30, Lyle says, you know, it's really too bad. It seems that more politicians today aren't woven out of the same cloth that Don Getty was. Uh, Gerald says it sounds like Getty's life was the painted picture of a Christian man. Uh, another says, uh, <laughs> dear God, give us back Don Getty. I suppose that there's deeper political implications there. Do you have a tie-in or a connection or a particular memory that surfaces when you think of former Premier Don Getty? Premier Getty was my first boss. I didn't get to see him every day. I worked for the agriculture minister in his office, Ernie Isley at the time, and Premier Getty was then uh, leading the party, leading Alberta. And so I would go to their meetings, and he was always uh, polite and genteel and, and lovely and welcoming to us young people who were getting our first jobs. I was a student at the time. It was a summer job, but it was a great first job. Huh. It's, it's interesting to hear people reflect. I said this just a few minutes ago on the air that so many people are talking about what a gentleman he was, what a gentle spirit he was. And we, we look at politics and not to say that there aren't those with decorum or class in politics, but we look at who seems to make the most noise right now. And I mean, you look stateside at what's going on, you know, the GOP race right now and people watch shows like House of Cards, and, and you sort of think that a politician couldn't possibly survive while keeping it classy, but it sounds like that may have been the case with Don Getty. Well, sure. It was still politics, though. I have to say, I listened to this stuff, and while I can't say anything negative about Premier Getty, he was in kind of a rarefied atmosphere at the time. It was still politics. It was still pretty ugly. It's come always on. politics. It's just, it's nice to r- make that seem romantic and nostalgic, but come on. I'm sure that there are those uh, maybe listening right now that served in opposition through those years going, oh, we could probably tell you a few, story, a few stories, but but we won't because we're going to keep it classy ourselves. Of course. Todd, we, and I was telling you through the break, you know, we, we, we spent almost the first two hours of the of the show today and not necessarily intending to do so talking about mental health issues and many listeners pointed out that you know sometimes it's important even without a a defined mandate or with an end goal in sight to just open the conversation on things even when you don't know what to say and I have to say and I would say this to you privately but I'll say it in the presence of our listeners as well that I've considered you to be a friend for a long time but in these last 12 months when I've seen you, despite the fact that we've spoken candidly and freely on so many different occasions, I don't necessarily know what to say because uh, the Babiak family is one family of several that have had their collective heart broken last April. Can you bring us up to speed on how you're doing, your, your family, your brother Kirk, following Paula's murder? I think of Kirk and the children, of course, as they're the primary victims of it, but Paula was an unusually wonderful person, and the way you're speaking of Don Getty is the way everyone speaks of Paula. She uh, lived to help other people. She was a very successful, ambitious woman, just an absolute light in her community and around everyone she knew, and uh, just one morning she's gone, and that has been 
that has been devastating has changed everything. Changed the way you see uh, your children, the way you see your life. It's something we're not trained to handle. And that is that has been really interesting to watch. I have not known really what to say to my brother for the last 11 months. Paula Stiles was found dead inside her Sherwood Park home the morning of April 15th. Of course, your brother Kirk, her boyfriend, and as you wrote this weekend in the Globe and Mail, the two of them, uh, just prior to her killing, had been house shopping together, looking to bring their families together. This murder, to this point, on this broadcast date, remains unsolved. What sort of an impact is that having on, on your brother and the family? Well, I think you begin to imagine your life one way, and and you see as you age together with your new partner and your children in this new house. I mean, everything was settled for Kirk in a sense. For the first time maybe in his adult life, everything was settled. I'd never seen him uh, so confident and happy. And then it, it just ends. And it ends not with a heart attack or a car accident, which would be horrible, but it ends with violence and hatred and, and, and now confusion. So you all, all we can talk about it uh, between one another is is how you how you move past it, how you sleep through the night, how you stop thinking these thoughts. And uh, as your segment this morning shows, this is a, this is not a science we understand. We're not trained to do this. You have a book set for release this Wednesday, Son of France, which is the sequel to Come Barbarians, which is excellent. I I, I read it almost the moment it came out, the story of Christopher Cruz. And, and, and as you shared with us on Friday in this piece in The Globe, a character who you based loosely on your own personal experience. But I have to imagine, and, and you develop this thought through this column, that this must have been an impossibly difficult process for you, despite the fact that the manuscript was already written, the manuscript for Son of France, prior to Paula's death, going through the editing process it must have been impossibly difficult talking about violent crime and murder when your own family was in the midst of such turmoil at the same time. Yeah, it's a crime novel, and it's the second crime novel I've written. And I think I went from thinking about crime as something imaginary that surrounds us, of course, but as art and entertainment, as something that happens to other people. And then over the course of one morning, suddenly it happens to, to my family. And... You begin as a writer to then empathize with all of the victims in your book differently. And as I wrote in the Globe and Mail, you start to think about the, the mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and cousins and friends of every person who, who meets an untimely end in your book. And uh, it makes you obsessive and, and strange when you're, when you're trying to, to work on it because you do want to approach it in a human way. And it is art and entertainment, but there is, at its core, this is the oldest story. It's how we curse ourselves. I was reading Herodotus last week for fun. This is what we talk about. We've known it's been the wrong thing to do, to murder someone, but it has been the way that we express our humanity and inhumanity in art right from the very beginning. And being involved in it and then now understanding it at a, at a really molecular level has been fascinating and hard. 
You, you write about, I mean, this is how you open your column. I can't remember the last time I read a novel without a violent crime, usually a murder. You say, yeah, sometimes it's in the first chapter. We spend the rest of the book hunting the killer. Sometimes it's a subtler affair about loss or the effect of war, an event that happened years before the protagonist was born, but it's nearly always there. And look at one of the oldest books in history. Look at the Bible, the story of Cain and Abel. I mean, you don't have to get too many pages in before you read that. Compounding this introspection, I suppose, compounding the emotion that you must have been feeling as you're writing this book and then submitting it to your editors, you open Son of France with an explosion, an attack in Paris. And this is right around the time that I suppose in a roundabout way I could say that art was mirroring real life. I actually stole that event from real life. In the 1980s, there was a restaurant in the Marais, the Jewish neighborhood in Paris called Shea Goldenberg that blew up. And the, the police immediately started hunting a Palestinian terrorist and his organization. And that is the way the story was told. But over time, it seemed that maybe it wasn't this organization. Maybe it was white supremacists. And I found this kind of fascinating uh, this thing that happened in the 80s. So I brought it into 1993 when Son of France takes place right after Come Barbarians. So I put it as the central moment. And Christopher Cruz's job in the beginning of the book is to find out who did it, why they did it, and, and to find justice for it. Yet you write that, based on recent events in Paris, quote, I felt insensitive, like a voyeur. You say, I understand murder now, what it does to the people left behind. If I make murder into art or entertainment, am I making everything worse? Am I damning myself? Should I write and read stories about people who rescue caribou in peril? Do you feel handcuffed as a writer now, or do you feel almost more liberated to explore heavier things from a point of personal experience? I think liberated. I'm being a bit cute with the caribou thing. I'm not going to, and that's the way I end the column, I'm not going to, to stop anything from happening, and I'm certainly not going to redefine what fascinates, fascinates us as readers. I have to think of myself, of you, of everyone who reads a book before they so fall asleep at night, and who reads crime novels and loves them, as we're on to something. We know what moves us and confuses us and keeps us reading. So I'm not going to invent anything new. I think I come to it with a new and better understanding now, absolutely. But at the same time, you know, the, the, I remember the day of the explosions in November in, in France this year. And my first thought was, oh God, I feel like a ghoul. I'm writing about this thing that's happening, frankly, every day now. And uh, shouldn't I go off and, and help someone or something with my talents and obsessions? And I guess the answer is eh, yes and no. I'll do what I can, but I do have to be honest about what fascinates us as readers. It's, it's, it's interesting because the artistic process is something that nobody can understand except for that artist, right? I mean, so if you talk about what drives a painter or what drives a musician or, or what drives a novelist or an author, I suppose nobody can truly understand except for that individual. I think what binds all of it, all the art you're talking about, is we are trying to seek what it feels like or what it means to be a human being. And in, in a story, you always have to seek an event that causes that. We seek, we seek truth, we seek understanding, we seek retribution, whatever it might be, but these are all very human emotions. And I think the reason we write about murder, killing, death, loss, is it pulls out the strongest emotions we have. 
and that is often art. We're seeking what moves us. Do you put some space between your personal experience and your work in the sense of perhaps writing even directly about this experience, uh, Paula's killing, whether or not it's resolved on the justice front? I mean, could you see yourself ever writing about something that intensely personal? I mean, is that something you think your brother would ever support? My brother's a wonderful man, and he would support anything. And he's the kind of person, I know there are some people who would just close up and not want to talk about it. Kirk, from the beginning, has has been keen to talk about this. Uh, he, if you look at the fa the Facebook pages of Kirk and Paula before the murder, they were open and loving and sweetie pie in a way that almost no adult human beings are. And Kirk is even that way now about what happened. He's, he's not a guarded, macho man. Uh, I think if I were to approach it with, with elegance and care, Kirk would be okay with it. And of course, if I were to write about it, it would be about Kirk. And yeah, of course, I think if you're a writer, the first thing you do is think about, all right, how would I write about this? But I also don't want to feel like I'm manipulating the situation or doing something icky or that would, that would insult my brother or Paula's family or the memory of Paula. So I would approach it, I think, with, uh, with all the curiosity and questions that I, that I have. Hmm. Have you ever written true crime? I mean, I, I know that your novels have, have, have jumped all around. I mean, the Garneau block is, is one thing. Toby, a man, is a completely different story. I found that fascinating as a broadcaster myself. But, but I mean, your stories have, 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 have come from different settings, different storylines, different people. Does, does true crime appeal to you at all as an author? It certainly appeals to me as a reader. And we have great crime writers here in Edmonton, people like Jana Pruden, and, uh, who actually wrote about Paula's murder with uh, such grace and intelligence. I've never written about um, murder myself as a, as a journalist. I, I've left journalism more or less behind. I'm more interested in fiction than nonfiction, I have to say. I can't say exactly why. I, it's just what I read more of. And I know uh, that that's, I'm bucking trends. I think when people invite me to their book clubs, it's almost 100% women. Every now and then, I'll, I'll hear from a male book club, and we only do nonfiction. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm I'm not proper. I'm not following any pattern there. But no, I've I've not considered it. Though, with Paula's murder, I I'm certainly interested in it, and mm. I'm taking notes, keeping notes. I've spoken to the investigators uh, about it. You know, at it, when this is, there's some conclusion here. Can we talk? And they said absolutely. Mm. So I'm I'm preparing for it. I'm taking notes just in case. I, I want to say that the the uh, if, if it's not obvious to our listeners that the reason why I'm not asking you more specifically about some of the details around Paula's death and the fact that there has not been an arrest in this case is because we need to observe uh, the sensitivity and the integrity of the investigation. And I can't put you in a position to offer speculation on, on what may have happened or if the family has a suspect in mind. I appreciate you speaking as candidly as you can. It's interesting. You know, we had this conversation earlier this morning, uh, a listener called in to make the point, I think his name was Ben, that unless you personally have been impacted by something, I mean, we had another caller talk about her granddaughter's crystal meth addiction. We had somebody, Ben was talking about his wife's postpartum depression. I mean, there, there are, are experiences in life where we cannot truly understand what somebody's going through and perhaps should withhold commentary, to be quite frank, 
until heaven, I mean, heaven forbid, you don't wish anything on anybody, but unless we've been through something, it's not something that we can understand. And this has to be the exact position that your family is coming from on this. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you never imagine in your wildest nightmare that you would ever have to deal with the fallout, the spin-out from someone being killed. Yet oddly, this is what writing's all about and what art's all about. I mean, I, I think we can understand that's the magic. That's why we read books. That's why we watch movies. That's why uh, we play video games, probably. Humans are amazing. We can, with our imaginations, enter the heart and mind of other people. And so if the artist is doing a nice job, if the journalist is doing a good job, if the filmmaker, uh, if the painter is doing a good job, we actually can, in a sense, become that other person. And while that's all correct, you can't exactly understand. You can certainly begin to understand and enjoy and uh, be terrified by and be moved by that that art and that process that you're going through. When we come back out of this break, could, could we jump into the book a little bit? Because uh, I know a lot of people have, have, have been anticipating, the way you the way you wrapped up Come Barbarians left everybody going, okay, the next book's coming out soon. I would hope so anyway. And it is indeed. Uh, Son of France, if you're just joining us out March 8th, which is this Wednesday, uh, we'll get some details, maybe maybe as, as much as Todd Babiak is willing to share on where the storyline goes and, and where you can get your hands on this. More with Edmonton author Todd Babiak after this. Todd Babiak, our guest in studio. March is running away on me. Thank you for pointing out so gently during the break that March 8th is actually tomorrow. Your book is out tomorrow. Are books like albums, are they always released on Tuesdays? Maybe. I, That's a good you, point. I well, don't even albums know. Albums were always released on Tuesdays. I had no idea. <laughs> That's a good point. But they are. Uh, the book Son of France, the follow-up, the sequel to Come Barbarians, and it's the story of, of course, Christopher Cruz, who uh, you uh, let us know in a column this weekend was, was loosely based on you. Well, I borrowed from myself. I was, as a kid in junior high school, just beaten up in a bathroom once. And my parents at that time, the way we talk about bullies now it was not a thing then. Uh, what you did, you didn't complain to the principal. I wouldn't let my parents. So instead, they enrolled me in fighting self-defense classes. And so I did all the kinds of self-defense. It became my sport. And for about 15 years, it's, it's all I did and thought about for in my spare time. And so I was able to borrow from myself, giving Christopher Cruz a job. I almost became a security guy myself. Really? Well, it was, a, it was a, certainly an option, sort of high-end, you know, planning security. And, you know, I, I was the smallest bouncer probably in North America for a little while at a, on a White Avenue bar when I was doing my BA. Which one? Squires. Really? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Anyway, it was a, it was a really... You're all, anyway. Yeah, Bruce Lee was my, my hero. And so I, I grew up that way. And so I gave that alternate reality to Christopher Cruz. Where does this book uh, picks up where the other left off? Yes, almost immediately after. What can you tell us about Son of France? In Come Barbarians, it's about Christopher Cruz and his wife moving to France to save their marriage. And they have a daughter. And the story really begins when the daughter is is hit by a car. And instead of that being a random accident, it turns out it was orchestrated. It was still an accident, but the the accident was orchestrated, which you can when you read Come Barbarians, you'll begin to understand. Uh, Christopher's wife, Evelyn, was very involved in French politics and between politics and crime, uh, the Corsican mafia, you begin to, Christopher is sucked into all of this, and he has to try to save his wife, who runs off, 
and and in the end uh, he seeks revenge for everything that has happened to him he remains in France after the end of Come Barbarians, haunted by the city, the loss of his wife and daughter, and uh, the mayor of Paris more, hires him to, to help, uh, especially after the explosion. So that's, that's where it begins. So this means everybody has 24 hours to read Come Barbarians if they haven't already. Because you've got to read that first. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, I'm sure you could just pick up Son of France, but you want to read the first one first. And I'm not being paid to say this. You're not giving me anything fancy to say this, but I absolutely enjoyed Come Barbarians. I think I put it down like three times and read it almost cover to cover on vacation. And I'm very much looking forward to this one. Where can people find it? Well, they can find it at Audrey's. They can find it at the Chapters or Indigo. They can find it online if you're an Amazon person. So you can find it everywhere. HarperCollins, my publisher, is very good about finding lots of ways to buy the book. You had a whole bunch of billboards when Come Barbarians came out. Are they going to reciprocate that this time around? I don't think so. I didn't mind seeing those around town. <laughs> I don't, I you know, a lot of people, so. you're, you're, you're a success story. I, of course, I wait until we have 16 seconds left in the interview uh, to point out that you're one of those that, that achieved uh, great things in a newspaper career and then moved on to achieve even greater. Why did I leave no time to ask you about the state of the newspaper business? Another time. Another time. Todd Babiak, always a huge pleasure. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks Thank to the re- listeners, too. Sharing and, and, and having a conversation that's not easy. Uh, if I can say this, uh, look at my eyes uh, to a point of, from a point of complete and total sincerity. Our hearts are with your families and with your brother, Kirk, and everything you're going on there. We're looking for justice, and I can't wait to talk about it on this show when justice is achieved. Son of France out tomorrow. Can't wait to read it. Todd Babiak here in the Ched Studio. Here's the news. Did you happen to catch our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, sitting down with Laura Logan? Uh, A feature interview on 60 Minutes leading up to Trudeau's meeting with President Barack Obama this week. And I suppose technically not 60 Minutes. It was 13 Minutes. But in those 13 Minutes, Americans got a glimpse of what Justin Trudeau's all about. Or did they? Before we speak to political scientist Dr. Bob Murray, here is a portion of that interview that aired on 60 Minutes. Our Prime Minister on what Canadians don't like about our neighbours to the south. I had a conversation one time with the American parent of a friend of mine, and she was a, a big supporter of, uh, of a presidential uh, uh, candidate. And I pointed out that if indeed this man was running to be uh, as Americans like to say the most powerful man in the world. Uh, I just felt like it might be nice if they paid a little more attention to the world. So having uh, a little more of a, an awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world, uh, I think is, is what many Canadians would hope for Americans. Because Which... you can't be Canadian without being aware of at least one other country, the United States, because it's so important to us. I think we sometimes like to think that, you know, Americans will pay attention to us from time to time too. Pay a little more attention to the world. In just a little bit, we'll read some tweets from Jason Kenney, who was outraged at what our PM said about the United States. Let's find out what Bob Murray has to say about it, the VP of Research from the Frontier Center. Good morning to you. Good morning, sir. Pay a little more attention to the rest of the world. Was Trudeau bang on or out of line or both? 
Well, I think what we have to ask is, who are you talking about? Are you talking about the American government, or are you talking about American people? Uh, you know, I, I think the American government and its machinations plays, pays plenty of attention to Canada because we are the largest trade partner, largest oil exporter, that sort of thing. Uh, American people, we can debate until the cows come home whether or not there's sufficient understanding or paying attention to Canada. Obviously, states closer to the border pay quite a bit of attention to us because we're integral to their local economies and their culture, et cetera. But, uh, you know, the, the argument that Canadians know a lot more about the U.S. than Americans know about Canada, you know, that's one of those things where you like to take it on the road and see what you could actually find out. What did you make of the content uh, contained within those 13 minutes on the program, Bob? Did, did, did you find that it gave Americans an accurate portrayal of what our PM and, and maybe even what Canada is all about? Well, I, I think more than anything, it was a puff piece, but that's what's to be expected in that situation. I mean, why Americans are intrigued by Trudeau is the celebrity status and very much this idea of a of a dynasty. It's almost Kennedy-esque in the way that they're interpreting Justin Trudeau. So, you know, that piece last night reflected a lot of that. It was very much based on personality and questioning how it is that this young guy got elected uh, and what his appeal is. But the question, I think, now moving from that interview and what we're going to see this week in the U.S. is, can Justin Trudeau translate his celebrity into progress on significant policy issues that have been stalled for a long time? Uh, it certainly wasn't any secret that Mr. Harper did not get along with Mr. Obama for a great number of reasons, some ideological, some policy-based, like Keystone. And a lot of things just haven't had movement in the last five, ten years. And so there are a lot of people hoping that this visit this week is the, the reigniting of a more positive relationship where things actually get done. Uh, whether or not people are going to pay more attention to Canada, whether or not they're going to pay more attention to Justin Trudeau, who knows. But at the end of the day, what the reason we want them to pay attention to us is we want them to know uh, how safe the trading relationship is and how it's a, a positive net benefit to the U.S. So move on some of the key issues that you haven't been moving on. And this extends way beyond Keystone, by the way. I mean, things like softwood lumber and that sort of thing all are involved in these relationships that tend to get overlooked. I mean, it, under the, the Harper regime, it became almost a one-issue relationship. This is our largest, largest trading partner, but also integral to our national security and international security strategy. So there's a great number of things on the agenda that really have to see some movement. Does it even really matter, though, Bob, if Justin Trudeau is able to forge or, or, or further develop a positive relationship with Barack Obama? I mean, essentially, uh, somebody I saw online suggested that Barack Obama wouldn't be able to get a greased golf ball through a garden hose between now and November. Isn't the relationship with the next president the one that really matters? If anybody can get the golf ball through the hose, I want to see it. Um, but the, the real question I think that we're asking is if you can forge a positive relationship in the short term, this isn't necessarily about anything that would go through Congress. I mean, that's really what that would refer to. But it's more the, the pressure that Obama can exert on the bureaucracy in some of these key areas in the U.S. that are responsible for some of the decision-making outside of Congress and outside of the, the executive in the U.S., uh, to get things moving. A lot of this is just talking. A lot of this is a, a relationship between the two countries that has been fairly cold. 
And yes, of course, if you're dressed in Trudeau, you have to be looking to what happens this fall and who wins. Uh, and of course, the big danger is that Trudeau has gone all in on a relationship with Barack Obama because they share a lot of the same ideological interests and policy interests. What happens if you see a Republican win this fall, as unlikely as that may seem to many? If you do see a Republican win this fall, what happens to the relationship then when so much of what you've been working to build in the short term all of a sudden gets turned on its head? But I think this is why impartiality becomes really important. If there's areas of common interest that you can work on, you have to find them. But ultimately, it has to be nonpartisan, non-ideological. And I think we do see a little bit of a risk here in the, in the sense that Trudeau is going to go all in on the ideological side, most notably the environmental side, as well as a few other issues. And, you know, hopefully in the fall, for his sake, you see a Democrat in the White House to be able to continue some of that agenda. But if not, what is your contingency plan if we do see a Republican win this fall? And how are you going to be able to further Canada's interests and, again, use that celebrity to be able to influence uh, events in the U.S. and in D.C.? Uh, Bob Thunders, listening in on the text line, says every time there's an international event from a tsunami to a civil war, an aggressive occupation to a financial collapse, the first country everybody screams to for help is the USA. The fact that its citizens may not be able to point to Ottawa on a map is secondary because I couldn't think of a better neighbor to have to our south. It sounds to me like a Trudeau pout. Is Thunder on to something? Uh, a little bit. Again, I'm not really sure who he's referring to say, to, to say that Americans need to pay more attention to us. The American government pays quite a bit of attention to Canada because it, it can't ignore us in the way that people sometimes think that they can. What they can do is stall major policy issues, which is they have been uh, quite adept at doing, uh, and particularly knowing that we likely would benefit more than they would if we actually saw some progress. But again, by virtue of the fact that we are two very disparate nations in terms of power on the global stage, our interests are very different. Our outlook to the world is very different. Uh, so Canada has to be a little bit more internationalized in its viewpoint by virtue of the fact that we have to work harder to partner with bigger countries and other allies to exert pressure and to, and to uh, further our interests internationally, whereas the U.S. has far more of an ability to, first of all, garner its way and to unilaterally make decisions in a system of about 200 nation states. And so we have to work that much harder to make sure that we are working with allies, forging alliances, being part of multilateral institutions. Uh, and of course, we do look to the U.S. to, first of all, lead those institutions and exert their influence on Canada's behalf quite often, uh, So, which makes our relationship with the U.S. that much more important. So I think from that point of view, I don't think it was necessarily wise for the prime minister to say, pay more attention to us. It's not usually something you'd hear from a prime minister. And it probably should have been a little bit more uh, pointed in the sense of what it is you're hoping to get out of it. Uh, but I'm not necessarily sure it's going to do that much harm in the short term. You also wouldn't necessarily often see a Canadian prime minister in video footage captured, albeit before he was elected as PM, boxing an appointed Canadian senator. But that's exactly what 60 Minutes focused on. When we come back, more with Dr. Bob Murray. Why was that boxing highlight significant or not? What does it say about the PM? What does the PM think about it even? That's where we'll go next. Did not even go to the end. Not even close. People think that boxing is all about how hard you can hit your opponent. It's not. Boxing is about how hard a hit you can take and keep going. That ultimately is much more the measure of a person uh, than someone who says, oh, I've never been knocked down or I've never been punched in the face. Well, you know what? Maybe you should have. You might learn a few things about yourself. 
That was Justin Trudeau on 60 Minutes. It aired uh, just last night, speaking about that 2012 charity boxing match uh, versus, of course, Senator Patrick Brazo. Uh, Dr. Bob Murray, our guest, thanks for holding the line, Bob. Were you surprised to see that boxing match get so much play, or was it predictable considering exactly how they're trying to portray Canada's PM to an American audience? It was unfortunately predictable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, and the commentary afterwards about being knocked down as a measure of a person, uh, you know, you, you you look at somebody like a Justin Trudeau and say, you know, at what point have you been knocked down and then what are the knockdowns in your life that you're making the comparison to rather than making really poor sports analogies. So, uh, I, again, this goes back to, to why people are fascinated with, with the prime minister in the first place. And so much of it started around that time when he took over. Uh, as a you know, star in the Liberal Party, and and that boxing match as ridiculous as it was, and and how far he's been able to come on a great number of different levels, and added some substance to himself. But again, it, I don't think it's surprising that those things are going to continue to come out through his entire tenure as Prime Minister. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, not to criticize Laura Logan's interview skills. I mean, she's on 60 Minutes and I'm not. But if Justin Trudeau said to me, you know, sometimes you've got to be able to take a punch in the face and learn a thing or two, I would follow up with, who would you like to see get punched in the face, Mr. Prime Minister? It's too bad we didn't hear the answer to that, Bob. Well, and if you remember that boxing match, it's not like he took any really hard punches to the face anyway, so the analogy didn't really work in his favor. Yeah. Bob, I, you know what? Of, of the the Every time you're on the show, the text line lights up. You've seen it uh, before, and right now, the common theme, so many people pointing out that the fact that actress Kim Cattrall was portrayed as Trudeau's mother uh, in a photograph that was obviously uh, presented got past the editor's screen, unfortunately, uh, portraying Margaret as Kim Cottrell. A lot of listeners are saying, you know, it just goes to show exactly that Americans don't even have an entry-level knowledge of Canada. Can we read into something like a photograph, or do you just think, ah, that was an editorial indiscretion? Those editorial mistakes happen all the time. I, but However, in this case, it absolutely proves some of what Justin Trudeau was saying. Uh, so the timing is quite ironic in that sense, but I really don't think that it's a greater commentary, nor do I think it necessarily proves that every American's out of touch. I think the ed- obviously it was an editorial mistake. But again, if you go through media uh, and you go through some of these things, these things happen all the time. Uh, so the fact that that one slipped up and as prominent of a slip up, putting Kim Cattrall in there, uh, was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, the interviewer questioned uh, the Prime Minister on his actual life experience. Before I get Dr. Bob to comment on it, here's how Trudeau answered. Well, I was, uh, I was a snowboard instructor. I was a bouncer in a nightclub. Uh, I was a Whitewater River guide for many years. I worked as a teacher. Uh, you know, I make no apologies for a very varied uh, set of life experiences. But it's also opened you up to criticism. I mean, we've heard it, you've heard it. You know what people say, that you're too young, you're inexperienced, that you don't have what it takes to do this job. Well, I, the way I respond to it is by ignoring it. Uh, I mean, you cannot let yourself be defined by the hopes that you will fulfill the darkest wishes of your opponent. Was he bang on there, Bob? Uh, I suppose on some level. Uh, 
I mean, again, I've always questioned anytime somebody says, you know, somebody's inexperienced to be prime minister or president of the United States, and you say, what, what exactly do we look at in terms of experience when you go through the history of those that have had, held the office of prime minister and held the office of president of the United States and leaders of other countries? You have a varied group of individuals with unique backgrounds, some far more extensive in legislation or in business, whatever it might be, and some fairly limited. Ironically, one of the examples that Trudeau probably could have pointed to would have been President Barack Obama. <laughs> you know, prior to his becoming president in terms of very short tenure as a senator, uh, you know, one-term senator, and then also before that as a lawyer, and those sorts of things. But again, not a, a long, distinguished career as a statesperson and leading international affairs junkets or whatever else. And so, you know, it, the voters will look for what appeals to them at a given time based on a combination of ideas, personality, and ideology. And Trudeau happened to fit the bill this time around. Uh, whether or not that makes him qualified uh, or not to be prime minister depends on what your definition is of that qualification. But in my mind, the, the hallmark of a good politician is how often they get reelected. And so what Trudeau does with this term uh, as prime minister and what actually comes out of it, I think whether or not that appeals to voters down the road will be the true test of his, whether or not he was experienced and whether or not he did a good job. Dave's listening in, chiming in on the text line, says Trudeau will be absolutely eaten alive if Donald Trump gets in. When we come back, I'll ask Dr. Bob Murray if that is indeed the case. Of course, we'll have to start with the basic question. Is there a chance that Trump wins? That's coming up next. 1156, Dr. Bob Murray, our guest, VP of Research for the Frontier Centre. Bob, we were keeping an eye on Twitter, of course, following Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's feature on 60 Minutes last night. Uh, On Twitter, a woman by the name of June Findlay says, this story is not for Canadians. Rather, it's a brochure for what to expect when running away to Canada if Donald Trump gets elected. (laughs) Is Trump seriously a threat to achieve the Oval Office? And if so, what does Canada's relationship with the states look like? Uh, the answer to the first question is yes, uh, and let me explain why, because everybody likes to discount this. But if Donald Trump does win the Republican nomination at the convention this summer, and by you know, virtue of numbers and delegate counts going thus far, he is uh, on track to do that uh, and runs in a general election, uh, there is always a chance uh, that you know when you have two people running, unless there's a third party, that, uh, that all of a sudden he might win the White House. I mean, don't forget, I mean, the, the assumption right now is that uh, Donald Trump running as the nominee for the Republican Party automatically means the Democrats keep the White House, and that's likely to see Hillary Clinton in the White House. Uh, bear in mind that uh, Mrs. Clinton has, there are three simultaneous investigations going on about her email. Uh, not, you know, specifically looking at her, but more about the emails and the emails that are being released in classified information, et cetera. Uh, there, is still, there are still some concerns about likability and trustworthiness that are plaguing Mrs. Clinton's campaign, which is why people are still talking about Bernie Sanders at all. And so I don't think it's necessarily uh, as much of a foregone conclusion as others might think it is. However, uh, you know, if you do see a Donald Trump White House as ridiculous uh, and scary as that might be, uh, what that does to the relationship with Canada? Well, uh, Donald Trump is not a huge fan. You know, uh, he does not like NAFTA. He does not like a lot of the security arrangements. Uh, so he, I think there would be a number of changes. But again, you know, the, the likelihood is incredibly low that you'd see him in the White House. And the question is, it, does the bombastic person that you see on the campaign trail, is that the persona that would take the White House if he was somehow, someway ever to win? Uh, because usually what you see is a lot of the personality, whether it's great or awful, once it gets into a position of leadership along those lines, has to be tempered, at least in some way. Yeah, to avoid uh, and, World War Three, Bob. 
well, not only World War III, I think even more of a, of a reasonable thing would be just being able to function. Yeah. Bob, we've run out of time, but I'll tell you what, we've got to get you back on the show again soon because people love hearing your voice. Thanks for making time for us this morning. My pleasure. That's political scientist Dr. Bob Murray from the Frontier Centre. We've got a great show coming up tomorrow. I can guarantee you that. In the meantime, make it a great Monday. We'll talk to you soon.